Good afternoon, colleagues. We're going to begin with First Minister's questions, but before we do, could I invite the First Minister to update Parliament on the COVID pandemic? Uh, thanks, Presiding Officer. Um, sorry, 769 new cases were reported yesterday. Uh, that's 3.7% of tests carried out. And the total number of cases now stands at 200,406. There are currently 967 people in hospital, uh, which is 51 fewer than yesterday, and 89 people in intensive care, which is four fewer than yesterday. I also regret to report that in the past 24 hours, a further 31 deaths were registered, and that means the total number of people who have died under that daily measurement from COVID is now 7,084. And again, I want to send my condolences to everyone who has lost a loved one. Turning to vaccination, 1,515,980 people have now received a first dose. Uh, that is an increase of 27,903 since yesterday. Uh, the fact that more than 1.5 million people have now received the first dose of vaccination is, I think, a really significant milestone. Uh, we've now given a first dose to almost exactly one-third of the adult population, and that includes virtually everyone in the top four clinical priority groups recommended by the GCVI. In addition, 85% of 65 to 69-year-olds now have had a first dose, uh, so we continue to be on course to complete that group by early March. And of course, subject to supply, we expect to be able to offer first doses to all over 50-year-olds and to all adults with an underlying health condition by the 15th of April. I can also confirm that 56,661 people have now received a second dose. Uh, that's an increase of 6,540 from yesterday. And significantly, around a third of residents in older people's care homes have already received the second dose. And from Monday next week, we will start to publish that figure on a daily basis. Uh, once again, I want to take the opportunity to record my thanks to everyone involved in administering the vaccines and everyone who is coming forward to receive them. Uh, finally, the latest estimate of the R number will be published shortly. We expect it to have remained below one, uh, but perhaps not very far below one. And that underlines the fact that although everything is currently heading in a positive direction, there's still quite limited scope to ease restrictions while avoiding a potential resurgence in cases, which is why we continue to take a careful step-by-step -step approach. Indicative dates for easing restrictions have been given for the next six weeks because that's the time frame we can be most confident about. That approach allows us to monitor the impact of initial changes and also means that we can accelerate the easing should the data support that. And we'll set out more information as we are able to over the next few weeks. But for now, as vaccines do their work and as we learn more about controlling the new variant, it is vital that we proceed with caution. So I would ask people for now to stick with the stay-at-home advice. It is very difficult, but it is also working. And it is allowing the vaccination programme time to do its job and start to take more of the strain of suppressing the virus. So I would ask people to continue to stay at home and thank them for doing so. Thank you very much. We'll turn now to First Minister's questions. I would encourage members to press their request to speak buttons if they wish to ask a question, and I call Ruth Davidson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I have nothing to hide on this, nothing whatsoever. That's what Nicola Sturgeon said about the Alex Salmond crisis that is engulfing her government and this parliament. So if she has nothing to hide, can I ask the First Minister if she will publish her evidence to James Hamilton QC over multiple ministerial code breaches. 
First Minister. I have no difficulty with my evidence to James Hamilton, Hamilton being published, but of course James Hamilton is currently considering that. And I think out of courtesy to James Hamilton, it is firstly a matter for him as and when he wants to publish that. I think if I was to try to do anything that interrupted the proper investigation and process of that, I would uh, understandably perhaps face criticism. Uh, so I have absolutely no difficulty uh, with that being published. If uh, James Hamilton doesn't publish it himself when he issues his report, that timescale of course is a matter for him, um, then I would be uh, more than happy to consider publishing it afterwards. But what I will not do is seek to interrupt or interfere with the process he's currently engaged in. Ruth Davison. On Monday, the First Minister summoned journalists to her office and challenged Alex Salmon to produce his evidence, only for the Crown to then demand that sections be censored. Alex Salmon's evidence states this. The First Minister told Parliament that she first learned of the complaints against me when I visited her home on the 2nd of April 2018. That is untrue and is a breach of the Ministerial Code. First Minister, that is one of the sections that the Crown Office intervened with Parliament to remove, despite the fact it has been widely published elsewhere. It doesn't risk identifying complainers, which we all agree is an important safeguard for women who have already been grossly let down by her government. What is it about those two sentences of evidence that is so damaging that they should be censored? Or is it just that they are damaging to the First Minister? First Minister. Well, first of all, the fact that Ruth Davidson has stood up and perfectly legitimately uh, recounted uh, that version of events, which of course I will give my uh, own account when I appear before the committee next week, uh, demonstrates that all of Mr Salmon's allegations and claims about me are in the public domain. They have been widely reported and I would fully expect, have always fully expected, to be fully and in detail questioned about uh, all of those allegations when I appear before the committee next week. There is nothing in terms of publication or non-publication of evidence that has ever led me to expect anything else. I uh, absolutely expect to be questioned on all and every aspect of this, and I will answer uh, those questions fully and to the best of my ability, and people can judge those answers as they see fit. Um, what I will say, though, is this. Um, Scrutiny of me and the Scottish Government, because the Scottish Government has uh, made a mistake in uh, this process, is not just legitimate, it's absolutely necessary. And I don't shy away from that. I have waited a long time now to appear before the committee, um, and I am glad that I will finally have that opportunity next week. But anyone, anyone who is suggesting uh, that prosecution decisions or decisions that the Crown Office takes in terms of upholding court orders is in any way politically influenced uh, or politically driven is not just wrong um, and not just completely lacking in a single shred of evidence to back that claim up. But I would also suggest that they are signing up to a dangerous and quite deluded conspiracy theory uh, that risks undermining the integrity and the well-deserved reputation of Scotland's independent justice system. And political debate is right and proper. Politics is not, should not be for the faint-hearted. But I think all of us actually have a duty to conduct those debates in a way that doesn't unfairly trash the reputation of people who are doing their jobs, doing them independently of government. Ruth Davidson. Rising officer, here's why all the redacted parts of Alex Hammond's evidence are important, because they're exactly the parts that expose the First Minister. On the BBC twice, she claimed to know 
not to know of anything about sexual misconduct claims before April 2018. Three separate times she told Parliament that she found out from Alex Salmond himself that month. But she's been desperate to shut down everything about the secret meeting in her office the month before because it wrecks her whole argument and confirms that she misled Parliament. The truth is, she knew about those allegations before April 2018. And worse, we know now that she discussed sexual harassment complaints against Alex Salmond with her chief executive, with her chief civil servant and with her chief of staff in November, four months earlier. Does the First Minister understand why the public, to the public, this looks like a cover-up when the exact evidence that's being redacted is the most damaging to her personally? First Minister. The problem with Ruth Davidson uh, standing up here and recounting all of this and suggesting that it is some kind of cover-up is this. Every single uh, allegation and claim and assertion that she has just made there was included in the written evidence that I submitted to the committee and that has since been published. I submitted that, if memory serves me correctly, back in August last year. I've been waiting since then to appear before the committee. So all of that, uh, the meeting on the 2nd of April, the meeting three days earlier on the 29th of March uh, 2018, the fact that a completely separate matter, uh, a media query, uh, came to the SNP in November 2017, that's not a cover-up. I put that in my written evidence and I submitted it to the committee months ago. And people can go onto the Scottish Parliament website right now if they want and look at that. So it's not a cover-up. I expect to be fully questioned on all of these matters when I sit before that committee at long last on Wednesday of next week. Wednesday, I think by my count, is the sixth date I have had in my diary to appear before this committee. They've all been postponed uh, up until now uh, by the committee for reasons I understand. Uh, but I want to sit in front of that committee and I want to address all of these questions. Scrutiny of me is, as I said earlier, it's important, it's necessary, it's entirely legitimate. What is not legitimate is to pursue um, a, a conspiracy theory, a scorched earth policy uh, that threatens the reputation and the integrity of Scotland's independent uh, justice institutions just because you happen to dislike this government um, and to sacrifice all of that, if I may say so, presiding officer, um, on the altar of the ego of one man. Ruth Davison. People can see your deflection for what it is, First Minister. Just answer the questions. Because this sorry affair isn't just tarnishing the First Minister's own reputation, it is damaging the institutions that it is her responsibility to uphold. Majority votes by members of this chamber to produce legal advice ignored. Crucial evidence, freely available elsewhere, censored. Promises of openness and transparency broken. The Chief Executive of Scotland's ruling party caught calling for the police to be pressured, the reputation of the Scottish Government tainted, the standing of this Parliament diminished, a culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. And there's just one further question I want to ask. First Minister, is saving your own skin worth all the damage that you're doing? First Minister. No, the, the most important thing to me is the reputation of our country, uh, the integrity of our institutions, and I will always, I will always act in a way uh, that protects uh, exactly that. 
But, you know, there is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes, and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. She accuses me of deflection. What, what deflection? She asked me in her previous question about meetings on the 2nd of April and the 29th of March 2018. She accused me of a cover-up. I simply stood here and said it's a strange cover-up when I offered the information in published written evidence to the committee. Uh, it's hardly a cover-up when I've been waiting for months with five previously postponed dates to appear before a committee. I'm simply making the point that it is possible, and it used to be possible in this country, uh, to have rigorous, robust scrutiny and political debate without a scorched-earth policy of conspiracy theory and damaging the integrity of the independent institutions of the country. It is not me doing that. It is me seeking to stand up to them. Um, and can I say this, presiding officer, finally? Uh, Ruth Davidson wants to uh, lecture the rest of us about democratic integrity. But that's the same Ruth Davidson who's about to depart this elected institution, dodge an election, take a seat in the unelected House of Lords where she will pursue a political career at the taxpayers' expense but never have to ask voters for their permission ever again. I don't think Ruth Davidson is in the position to lecture anyone about democracy. Question to you, Jackie Bailey. Thank you. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Applause before I even start. At the heart of the committee set up to consider the Scottish Government's handling of harassment complaints are two women who have been failed by the Government. The committee's role is not to investigate the complaints, but to understand what went wrong, why the women were failed, so that women can never be let down like this again. I welcome the First Minister coming to the committee next week. But it is legitimate to explore some of the issues in the context of the ministerial code investigation led by James Hamilton QC. One such issue concerns meetings held with Alex Hammond's former chief of staff. Those meetings were the precursor to the discussion between Alex Hammond and the First Minister herself. But astonishingly, I understand that the identity of one of the original civil service complainants was revealed to the former Chief of Staff and then conveyed to Mr Salmond. This is an extraordinary breach of confidentiality. On whose authority was contact initiated with Mr Salmond's former Chief of Staff? On whose authority was the name of a complainer revealed? That action was certainly not about protecting the interests of the women involved. Did the First Minister authorise the contact? And if not, then who did? First Minister. Uh, I will answer all of these questions when I appear before the committee in detail, but it seems that Jackie Bailey is standing here uh, before I've had the opportunity to sit before the committee and accepting at face value Alex Salmon's account of all of this. Um, I do not accept Alex Salmon's account uh, of much of this, which is why when I sit before the committee, I will go through in detail uh, what actually happened and what did not happen. And I think that is the right and proper way of proceeding. Um, what I do agree with Jackie Bailey is that there are women at the heart of this. Uh, women that I've been accused of hiding behind, when in actual fact what I'm seeking to do is stand up for them, because their voices have been sidelined, their motives have been maligned, they have been 
accused of being conspirators um, in this whole process. And that's not only deeply unfair to the women concerned, um, I think uh, that is deeply unfair to the efforts that I think most of us agree with to create a culture in Scotland where women feel that they can come forward with complaints. So I want the women to be at the heart of all of these discussions. But can I say uh, to Jackie Bailey that accepting at face value the conspiracy theories and the account of the man that the women uh, accused of harassing them seems to me to be quite a strange way of supporting and standing up for those women. Jackie Bailey. Um, it is appropriate for the First Minister to come before this chamber and answer questions because this, at the core of it, is about her judgment and her leadership. And absolutely, this is about the women. The women who were failed by the government's botched handling of their complaints. Standing up for women takes more than warm words, presiding officer. But a complainant was named. That's not a conspiracy theory. A complainant was named. That is a fundamental breakdown in trust. It is beyond belief that anyone would tell the name of a complainant to the former chief of staff for Alex Salmon, which was then passed on to Mr Salmon. How on earth is that about protecting women? Because it is a gross breach of confidentiality. Given the First Minister's comments about Alex Salmon and his behaviour in her daily COVID briefing yesterday, why? Why on earth did she repeatedly agree to meetings with him even after she knew about the serious allegations against him? How was that helping the women who had complained? First Minister. Firstly, uh, Alex Salmond claims that the name of a complainant was given. Uh, that is not the same thing as saying uh, or accepting that that is the case. And these are exactly the matters that I will have the opportunity um, and many other matters uh, to get into when I appear before the committee. Um, and I will also explain why I uh, met with Alex Salmond um, and crucially uh, what I didn't do uh, after uh, I met with Alex Salmond, which was seek to intervene in the process or in any way sweep these complaints under the carpet. I heard Jackie Bailey give an interview uh, some weeks uh, or perhaps longer than that uh, ago now. Uh, I think it was actually when my written ev evidence was published uh, where I had set out that one of the things Alex Salmond had asked me to do was to intervene to bring about a process of mediation. I declined to do that because I didn't think it was appropriate for me to intervene. I heard Jackie Bailey do an interview uh, seeming to suggest that I should have done that. I should have intervened to bring about a process of mediation. So along the way here, I have faced accusations of collusion with Alex Salmond. I've faced accusations of conspiracy against Alex Salmond. Hopefully by the time I get to the committee, they'll have made up their minds which one it is they're actually uh, seeking to <laughs> accuse me of. The fact of the matter is, Neither of these things are true. Uh, when I became aware of the complaints, uh, I declined to intervene because I thought it was important a process happened. Uh, you know, for somebody uh, in my position, somebody hearing uh, what my predecessor, close uh, colleague, friend of 30 years was accused of, uh, the easier thing to do, perhaps, uh, and perhaps the thing in days gone by that would have been done, was to sweep these complaints under the carpet uh, and not to allow them to be properly investigated. I opted not to do that. And whatever difficulties have happened since then, whatever pain it has been caused to lots of people in this process, I don't regret not sweeping the complaints under the carpet because that was the right thing to do. Jackie Bailey. There is an inconvenient fact here for the First Minister. 
And it's not what Alex Salmond claims. It's not about a conspiracy. It's the fact that the former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond said that in one of these meetings, the name of one of the civil service complainants was given to him. Well, you, you, you know, it's interesting, presiding officer, the more noise there is from the SNP benches, the more I appreciate the difficulty they are in. There we go. See, it's starting again. Can I say, can I say this is an inconvenient fact and it is extraordinary that that was revealed. But, presiding officer, this week, Scotland's democratic institutions have been exposed in their inability to hold this government to account. The Crown Office intervened with the Parliament, resulting in evidence being removed. Evidence that any one of us can currently access on reputable news websites. We have a government that has refused to cooperate, denying the committee access to the legal advice they obtained for the judicial review that cost the taxpayer £600,000. And the rush-through harassment policy lies on the shelf, gathering dust. It's not been used in the last three years, at a time when there are more complaints against Nicola Sturgeon's ministers than there were under her predecessor. We have seen this week that there is something rotten at the core of the SNP, and it is poisoning our democratic institutions. This isn't just about Alex Salmon. This isn't even just about the internal problems in the SNP. This is about the treatment of women in the future. So what is the First Minister going to do to make that right? First Minister. What is poisoning our democratic institutions, uh, in my view, are politicians standing up and hurling assertions and accusations without a shred of evidence to back them up. And I, I think that's something all of us need to seriously reflect on. It's interesting, though, that Jackie Bailey stands up here and uh, takes as gospel. I'm not sure when she became chief spokesperson for Alex Salmond, but she stands up in this chamber and, uh, and takes as gospel every claim that Alex Salmond makes. When Alex Salmond was standing here, she didn't believe a single word that he said. So why don't we allow all of these claims Alex Salmon's tomorrow, mine next week, to be properly scrutinised by the committee. Hopefully they will be able to do that. And then people can make up their own minds. At the heart of this uh, are women. Uh, women who came forward with complaints, first to the Scottish Government, later to the police. And the police independently investigated all of that. It was right that the Scottish Government put in place a process to allow complaints to be investigated. It was right that when they came uh, to, to light, before I knew about them, that the government didn't sweep them under the carpet, albeit the government made a mistake. And when I became aware, it was right, in my view, that I did not collude with Alex Salmon to make them go away or sweep them under the carpet. That may have led to difficulties. It certainly made Alex Salmon very angry with me. I think that is self-evident. But that was the right thing to do. Because if we are to be a country where women can come forward, then all of us, yes, we need to have a rigorous political debate, but we all need to respect the independent institutions, the justice system, highly respected, and all of these institutions so that Scotland is a place where the culture says to women, if you have been harassed, no matter how powerful the person who might have harassed you, you can come forward and your claims will be treated seriously. Question three, Willie Rennie. Um, Jackie Bailey has just made a very serious point about the handing of the name of a complainer over to Alex Salmon's Chief of Staff. So just to be clear, is the First Minister saying categorically that that did not happen? 
that the name of a complainer was not passed on to the former Chief of Staff of Alex Sam before the meeting on the 2nd of April? First uh, to the very best of my knowledge, I do not think that happened. Willie Rennie. What I want to understand is, following the, re the revelation that this was an allegation, did the First Minister herself investigate this matter to find out the truth as to whether this information was passed on? Because an absence of action on this from the First Minister would be negligence in that respect. Because there is corroborating evidence that this did happen. So is the First Minister saying that they are lying? First Minister. Um, it is not uh, my belief that that happened, but there is a committee process underway right now. There is also a process separate to the committee uh, where the independent advisor on the ministerial code is looking at all of these matters. And what I am doing is allowing these processes to take their course. I think that is the right and proper way for me to proceed. Thank you. Question number four, Alison Johnson. Thank you, presiding officer. This week, National Records of Scotland revealed that before the pandemic struck, Scotland had the highest death rate amongst homeless people in the UK. As we recover from the pandemic, we mustn't contemplate going back to the way things were, to a broken economy that allows too many to fall through the cracks. We have seen unparalleled efforts to tackle rough sleeping during this crisis, and of course it was pressure from the Greens that led to more support for tenants and the introduction and extension of the winter evictions ban. Now that it's clear that restrictions will continue for months, will the First Minister commit to extend the eviction ban to prevent more people becoming homeless? And will she commit to making a winter evictions ban a permanent fixture? First Minister. Uh, we've already extended the uh, ban on evictions and we will do that again uh, should that uh, require to be necessary. I think it's really important that people do have the protection against eviction uh, given the, the circumstances that we are living through. Um, I've had discussions uh, previously with uh, Alison Johnson's colleagues, uh, Patrick Harvey and Andy Whiteman, about uh, the, the concept of a standing ban on evictions over winter months. Uh, we've had an open discussion about that. I think we come at this from the same perspective of wanting to reduce evictions and uh, reduce homelessness. Uh, but there are differences of opinion about the effectiveness and the practicality of that. I think uh, it's France that uh, is often cited as the country that does this. Uh, there is evidence there that once the winter ban is lifted, uh, as the country goes into spring, evictions spike again. So I think we need to look at these things properly and in balance and decide what is the the best way of protecting people from eviction and indeed protecting people from homelessness and I certainly am open-minded to those discussions. Alison Johnson. Thank you. Um, of course, presiding officer, housing is a human right, yet homeless figures show a system that still gives better protections to property investors than vulnerable people. We stand on a rising tide of poverty, which has been exacerbated by the pandemic, but unless we shift our priorities, we'll build a recovery that makes things worse, not better. And that's why in this year's budget, it's vital we direct support to our communities. The Scottish Government was on track to miss its own child poverty targets even before the pandemic hit. Now the need is even more urgent. So will the First Minister show more ambition to boost household incomes, whether by strengthening the social security net, cutting public transport costs, making homes warmer, or providing more free meals for children in Scotland now? 
First Minister. We're already taking action um, across most of uh, these issues. Uh, for example, it's because of our concern about meeting our child poverty targets that we've introduced the Scottish Child Payment, which of course has uh, recently launched and money will start to go into the pockets of low-income families uh, from that. Uh, we've also uh, set out plans and indeed had constructive discussions in last year's uh, budget process with the Greens around uh, concessionary travel uh, for younger people to reduce the cost of public transport. We have already uh, made clear from uh, my party perspective, if we are re-elected uh, in May, then we will introduce free school meals all year round for all young people in primary school. So there's lots of work here still to be done, um, and I would be the last to suggest otherwise. But equally, I think, to be fair, this government has a good record in terms of putting in place policies that actually tackle uh, poverty and child poverty in particular. And I hope uh, we are in a position to continue that in the next parliament. Thank you. Question number five, Stuart McWhelan. Thank you, Senator Officer. To ask the First Minister how much the Tenant Hardship Loan Fund has paid out to date to support tenants who are struggling with rent arrears. First Minister. Uh, we opened the £10 million Tenant Hardship Loan Fund on the 7th of December to offer interest free loans to support tenants in managing and preventing rent arrears. Uh, the loan, of course, is only one part of the support available to tenants, and there are other, perhaps more sustainable options like housing benefit or discretionary housing payments. Uh, the loan fund is part of wider actions to support tenants um, alongside extended notice periods, the ban on enforcement action in level three and four areas, uh, the introduction of private landlord pre-action requirements, and increases to discretionary housing payments. Uh, as of the 15th of February, the loan fund had paid out or offered more than £200,000 to 73 tenants. Uh, but I understand a further 357 applications are currently being processed. Jim McMillan. Thank the First Minister for that reply. I have been contacted by a local lighting agent on behalf of their clients who appear to be struggling to access the Tenant Hardship Loan Fund. Out of numerous applications, only one to date has had a positive outcome. I have also been informed that the two main issues, first of all, the inability to actually check whether a tenant's application has been accepted or rejected, and secondly, in addition to being unable to follow the progress of an application and in cases where it has been rejected, it is not clear as to why this is the case. First Minister agree with me that the Tenant Hardship Loan Fund is an important way to help tenants who are struggling with rent arrears and that when an application is rejected, an explanation should be given to the tenant outlining why this is the case, signposting them to other support services, should, or should this be necessary. First Minister, uh, yes, I do agree with that, and uh, that is provided and, and certainly should be provided. Tenants are provided with contact details of the loans administrator and a unique application number when they submit an application so that they can check uh, the progress of their application. Uh, there is also a range of information and support provided for applicants, and in cases where a loan is turned down, uh, information is supplied on alternative sources of financial support. Um, I'm sorry that uh, Stuart McMillan's constituents have not had successful applications. However, most uh, rejected applications are due to uh, unaffordability, which is why uh, I will stress again that while this fund is an important source of additional help, there may be longer-term and more sustainable forms of support that are more suitable for people facing arrears. Thank you. Question number six, Jackson Carlo. Uh, to ask the First Minister what the anticipated outcomes and timetable are for the case record review into mesh implant surgeries, which has been led as moderator by Professor Alison Britton. First Minister. 
The review is based on a restorative justice model and will give women the opportunity to set out their concerns and have these reviewed by a panel of clinicians in a respectful manner. In each case, the outcome will be determined by expert opinion and consensus, and the moderator will meet with each woman to discuss the findings. Clearly, I can't prejudge what the outcomes will be in each case, but the review is intended to help the women who take part. The length of time the review takes will depend on how many women come forward, but I hope that as many women as possible will be able to benefit. Jackson Carla. Uh, this review follows directly on from the meeting the First Minister held at my request with mesh implant survivors in November 2019. Now, everyone understands that the pandemic has inevitably delayed progress since, but the hopes and expectations for this review cannot be understated. It's clear that a resolution of this issue will carry on into a third parliament since the petition was heard in 2013. Now, last week, together with Alec Neil and Neil Finlay, I met with Professor Britton and campaigners. Professor Britton shares concerns regarding the terms of reference, for example, the seeming ability to amend patient records without reference. And if she has not already done so, she intends, I understand, to propose variations. At the same time, Dr. Whale Agar, the clinician who most inspires the confidence of MeSH women and who originally declined to participate in the review because of his own reservations regarding the terms of reference, has intimated that were they to be amended, as Professor Britton and the survivors hope, he would now agree to participate in the review. Now, amending the terms of reference and having Dr. Agar join the review team would more than anything else, First Minister, secure the support and confidence of all these women. We can't let them down again. Will the First Minister to commit to making both things happen? First Minister. Well, I don't know if Professor Britton has uh, raised her concerns about the remit with the Scottish Government yet. Um, the Health Secretary is indicating not. She is, of course, uh, perfectly uh, free to do so, and we will take uh, any suggestions she makes very seriously, obviously without knowing in detail what amendments she wants to the terms of reference. I can't stand here and give a commitment to agree, but uh, she is clearly in the position uh, that we would listen very seriously to what she says. Dr Agar was asked to be part of the review, but he did decline if that was to change or if the, the reasons for his uh, de declining in the past were to change and he was willing to reconsider. I'm sure that is also something uh, that we'd be open to. Thank you. Question number seven, Ruda Grant. To ask the First Minister how the risk of COVID-19 transmission within Scottish courts has been mitigated in light of the increase in prisoner testing positive in the prison estate. First Minister. Well, the government has provided funding uh, to help protect the safety and well-being of everyone coming to a court. We've provided funding for remote high court and sheriff jury centres to help restore pre-COVID court capacity and also funding to develop court technology. Uh, obviously, how all of this works in practice is an operational matter for the Scottish Courts and Tribunal Service. Extensive risk assessments have taken place in all buildings with guidance for staff and court users regularly updated uh, to reflect the latest public health advice. Uh, no accused person who has tested positive, has symptoms or is self-isolating is being brought to court. The coronavirus emergency legislation also enables accused uh, persons to be excused from attending procedural court hearings and for trial limit uh, trial time limits uh, to be extended where necessary and any accused appearing from police custody with COVID concerns joins the court custody hearing by video link from the police custody unit. Rhoda Grant. The First Minister will be aware of concerns from solicitors regarding unsafe working conditions in courts. A number have caught COVID-19 and have also passed it on to loved ones at home. 
the outbreaks in prisons and the huge increase of numbers of prisons having to prisoners having to self-isolate it will only be heightening their concerns. Some solicitors, understandably, are now refusing to meet clients in their cells because it's unsafe and they need to protect themselves and their loved ones. Given that we already have huge backlogs in their courts, this is creating further delays. So can I ask what the First Minister is doing to investigate how those infections have occurred in the court and prison systems and what she's doing to ensure they are safe? Well, safety is, is paramount. Uh, in terms of outbreaks that we've seen recently in uh, prisons, I uh, was discussing this earlier this week with the Chief Medical Officer. One of the concerns, and it's uh, a concern that is being monitored, and uh, I, I wouldn't say that there is a definitive understanding of it yet, but one of the concerns about the new variant of COVID is its rapid spread within institutional settings, and that appears to be um, an issue of concern uh, in prisons right now and is something that is uh, under ongoing review. Um, in terms of safety of uh, people who attend court settings or of lawyers uh, visiting prisoners uh, in prison, uh, these matters, of course, have to be taken very seriously by the Scottish Prison Service and in terms of courts by the Scottish Courts and Tribunal Service, which is why uh, some of the steps that I outlined before are so important. And uh, they must keep up with latest public health advice to make sure that the risks of transmission are being minimised. Um, the, the final point I would make applies here and you know, to outbreaks wherever they are occurring. At the heart of all of this is the ongoing necessity to suppress the virus and keep it as low as possible. Um, and that takes all of us to avoid it getting into institutions, to avoid it spreading to different places. Um, and that is why the cautious approach that we're taking right now remains so important. Thank you very much. We'll turn now to supplementary questions. Alistair Allen to be followed by Miles Briggs. Alistair Allen. Presenting officer, I spoke at the weekend with constituents from the Isle of Barra who had only had one ferry from the mainland in the previous 10 days. This had meant that perishable essentials such as bread and milk were several days old on arrival after travelling a convoluted route through other islands. The islanders faced a similar situation last winter due to a lack of resilience in the ferry fleet during the winter refit season. So can I ask the First Minister what action can now be taken such as potentially chartering other vessels, additional vessels, to ensure that residents in Barra and elsewhere do not face such levels of disruption to lifeline services in future. First Minister. Well, I certainly acknowledge the frustration uh, of customers during periods of disruption, and we are firmly committed to supporting vital lifeline services. The decision to delay or cancel a sailing is never taken lightly, uh, as the operator always recognises the importance of the ferry services to island and remote mainland communities. Uh, the, the prolonged recent severe weather has caused a lot of disruption to sailings that has been further compounded by technical issues. Uh, the operator has taken a number of actions to continue to support the vital lifeline services. These include moving the MV Hebrides to cover Oban-based services in order to provide lifeline services to Col, Tyree and Barra, and moving the MV Lord of the Isles North. Uh, I'll ask the Minister for uh, connectivity in the islands to provide the member with more information, but I want to give an assurance that these are issues uh, that we understand the importance of. Thank you. Miles Briggs to be followed by Jenny Manor. Thank you, President Officer. This week, Dr Hector Charlois, the former director of the Princess Alexandra Eye Hospital here in Edinburgh, said that the Scottish Government's withdrawal of support for a proposed replacement appeared to be driven by savings, savings of money rather than concept of care for eye patients in Edinburgh. He described SNP cuts to NHS Lothian as an act of vandalism. 
Dr Charlwa has warned that we should expect people who have to travel longer distances for treatment to have worse outcomes with more people risking blindness. Does the First Minister actually believe that it would be acceptable for Scotland's capital to lose specialist eye services and for indeed Edinburgh to become one of only a few cities across this country, across the UK, to not have an eye hospital. Will she think again, and on behalf of people who I represent in Edinburgh, this cannot happen and must be an election issue if this government will not think again on this key issue? First Minister. Well, what, I, what I would say is this is a really important issue. Um, I, I have somebody within my own family who is dependent on uh, and has been for a long time eye services within Edinburgh. I know how important these services are. It's not the case that the Scottish Government has withdrawn support. We've asked NHS Lothian to look again at the proposal and we will continue to discuss with NHS Lothian how we can move forward um, on a sensible basis. Uh, of course it's important that Edinburgh um, has uh, fit for purpose, state-of-the-art uh, services for people who need them in terms of eye care um, and that's what we are committed to working with NHS Lothian to ensure. Thank you. Jenny Mara, to be followed by Christine Graham. I asked the Chief Executive of NHS Tayside last week at the Audit Committee if he could guarantee the long-term future of the breast cancer service in Nine Wells. He said he couldn't. My fear and the fear of oncologists who are now being re-employed by world-leading cancer centres is that women in Dundee will not travel to Edinburgh or Aberdeen for breast cancer treatment. If they can't get treatment in Dundee, they will go untreated. The demise of this service started with a prescribing query, then a ream of government whitewash reports taking the official line despite scientific evidence to the contrary. Now, women in Dundee may not get the cancer treatment that they need. Let me ask the First Minister now, will she commit to the long-term future of a breast cancer service in Dundee? I, I certainly want to see uh, breast cancer services have the long-term future in Dundee that I'm sure everybody in Dundee wants to see. Uh, I'm very happy to look into this uh, in more detail in terms of the reasons uh, behind the statement of the NHS Tayside Chief Executive um, and understand uh, the, the basis for those and uh, reply to the member in more detail. But I want to be very clear. I don't think it would be um, acceptable or appropriate for women in Tayside to have to travel long distances for essential uh, breast cancer support and care. So uh, if Jenny Mara uh, forgives me, I will get further detail on uh, the, this and come back to it as soon as possible. Thank you very much. Christine Graham to be followed by Maurice Coyne. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. First Minister, as we know, spring is in the offing and thoughts turn to gardening, which is good for the soul in these tough times. I declare an interest. But while you can buy plants and gardening equipment in B&Q and supermarkets, garden centres, most of which are mainly outdoors, are restricted to click and collect, which the Horticultural Trades Association has claimed has provided only 3% of the usual turnover. And this is an important time of the year for them. Can I ask if the Scottish Government will revisit this as it does not appear to be a level playing field and is impacting not only on small local garden centres but all the local growers who provide seasonal stock? First Minister. Uh, I'm not sure my soul is uh, yet uh, quite as troubled as uh, requiring me to take to the garden. My apologies to gardening. I'm sorry, Rosanna Cunningham is about to give me into trouble. My apologies to gardeners and horticulturalists. I know how important it is, and I'm going to just move on now before I get myself into to any deeper uh, trouble. 
important, uh, I know how important gardens are to all of us, including me, and how important the spring and summer period is to the industry. Uh, limiting many garden centres to online and collection was a really difficult decision we had to take to ensure we suppressed uh, the new, more transmissible strain of the virus. Uh, we haven't taken the approach of prohibiting sales of particular items within essential stores. It's up to the individual retailer to decide this, provided they operate within the guidelines. Uh, garden centres remain open in Tier 3 areas, and as is set out this week, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to see a phased uh, but significant reopening of the economy in April, and that would include the opening of non-essential uh, retailers. But can I just reassure people, in case anybody uh, got the wrong impression from the uh, light-hearted start of that answer, is gardens and garden centres are really important to everybody across the country. Maurice Corrie to be followed by Elaine Smith. <coughs> Presiding officer, a key recommendation in the report produced by the Citizens' Assembly last week is that it, that it should be the health experts who lead the current daily COVID briefings held by the Scottish Government and not the politicians. Does the First Minister accept this recommendation from the Citizens' Assembly? First Minister. Um, you see, I struggle to work out what the Tories want. I mean, one hand, they're always saying to me, concentrate on COVID, concentrate on the day job and then on the other hand they're saying stop doing daily briefings to give the people of Scotland the information that they need. I don't know if that's what if that what, what the Tories think uh, I should do, is that equally what they think Boris Johnson uh, should do? I mean, I saw the UK Education Secretary lead a briefing uh, last night. I've seen the Health Secretary in the UK and Boris Johnson does it regularly. I think it's really important in a public health crisis that people get uh, politicians who stand up, take responsibility and are accountable, um, joined with uh, public health experts who add uh, that important information. Obviously, we're going into an election period and I take my responsibilities to ensure uh, that that election uh, period is conducted properly and fairly, very seriously. And that has implications, of course, uh, for how we proceed on the COVID uh, briefings in that period. Elaine Smith, to be followed by Alec Neil. Thank you, President Officer. On Tuesday in Parliament, the First Minister mentioned a specific date, saying that she hoped communal worship would restart on April 5th, the day after Easter Sunday. But she then went on to suggest this could potentially be a few days earlier, which might then be in time for important religious festivals such as Passover and Easter Sunday, which is, of course, the greatest Christian feast day. If the First Minister is not going to allow immediate reopening of places of worship to give Scottish Christians and other faiths equality with the rest of the UK, will she at least now confirm what date she intends to allow them to reopen? Will she base access on the size of the church or premises and not an arbitrary 20 people and confirm that meaningful discussions are taking place with religious leaders about this? First Minister. Uh, yes, constructive discussions are taking place. Um, what I said on Tuesday is that uh, I recognised that the 5th of April date fell just after, not just Easter, but Passover, and therefore we would take account of that. So it would be, uh, assuming that phase of reopening can start, it absolutely would be the intention to allow places of worship to open in time for the full Easter uh, weekend period. And I, in terms of discussions with uh, faith leaders, I later that afternoon um, had discussions with the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and confirmed that uh, to him. In terms of the restrictions, in terms of numbers, uh, we will need to uh, do some careful consideration to to see what the state of the virus is, because this is about keeping people safe. We want people to be able to go to churches to worship, but obviously we want people to be safe from COVID as well. Uh, but if we are able 
to do that phase of reopening, then of course we will ensure that it happens for places of worship in time for these really important religious festivals. Thank you. Alec Neil to be followed by Edward Mountain. Thank you very much indeed, Presiding Officer. Can I ask the First Minister further to Jackson Carlo's question about the Britain review on mesh records, if she will give an undertaking that this review will not in any way, waiting for the results of that, hold up any decision on the uh, need for NHS funding for those women who need urgent mesh removal procedures to be undertaken by Dr Veronicus in the United States of America? Um, I'll certainly give an undertaking that we won't hold up uh, any urgent treatment or funding for urgent treatment that any woman needs be because we're waiting for a review. Uh, obviously, the issues around Dr Veronicus and uh, access to him in America or him coming here have been uh, long-standing, and there may be uh, a variety of different ways in which we need to support women, uh, but we will not hold up uh, appropriate decisions uh, for women uh, in order to wait for the conclusion of a review. Thank you. Edward Mountain to be followed by Pauline McNeill. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, all those affected by bullying within NHS Highland feel cheated that this Parliament has not found the time that was indeed promised to debate the Sturrock report. Now, I am still being contacted by former and current members of NHS Highland asking how they register for the healing process. Does the First Minister therefore agree with me that the deadline of tomorrow for registering should be extended to ensure that no one who has suffered bullying and harassment within NHS Highland is excluded. First Minister. I'm happy to look into that specific point, obviously urgently, because it uh, relates to the deadline of tomorrow, but I would not want anybody to be excluded, so uh, take it from that that I'm broadly sympathetic to what you have said there, but I, I need to, to check the detail of that. On that, I'm looking to the Health Secretary. She's indicating to me that she has undertaken to come back before Parliament stops for the election uh, to give a, a further update. Uh, if the Parliamentary Bureau wants there to be a debate and time can be found for that, I certainly see no reason why that would not be the case. Of course, it is right that that should come from government, but I say simply as a statement of fact that opposition parties have time uh, where they can choose what is debated in the parliament as well. Uh, but I'll ask uh, Graeme Day, uh, Minister for Parliamentary Business, to discuss with business managers uh, whether there is both uh, an appetite for and time in the remaining schedule to allow such a debate to take place. Thank you. Pauline McNeill to be followed by Joan McAlpine. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation found that 45 per cent of those living in the private rented sector's incomes had dropped by 45 per cent, and also of that group, 58 per cent borrowed or used up their savings. In a month's time, renters will face eviction as protections will end. And with those figures in mind, First Minister, will the Scottish Government extend the eligibility for discretionary housing payments to low earners and not just those on benefits? Or if the Scottish Government would consider providing grants for those in the most acute need rather than loans, because many people may not have the means to repay those loans, and you can see the obvious consequences of this in the short and longer term, that more people may face eviction if we don't act now. First Minister. So I'll consider all these things. Um, 
I've already covered some of this in my responses, partly to Alison Johnson, but also to Stuart Macmillan uh, about the, the housing loan fund. Um, and I made the point there that not everybody is able to take a loan and have the ability to repay that. So there needs to be other sustainable uh, ways in which people can have support. Discretionary housing payments is one of those ways. Uh, we, are, uh, we look often at the, the, the quantum of support that's available through discretionary housing payments. And we will I will certainly take away the request to look at the eligibility uh, we are very serious about seeking to help people that are in this position. There's a range of ways in which we already do it, but if there are additional ways that we can find and implement, we will certainly do so. Thank you. Joan McAlpine to be followed by Liam Kerr. Thank you very much. The mobile testing units in Dumfries and Galloway have been doing an excellent job under difficult circumstances. However, I have been approached by a constituent working there who has told me that they are not classified as frontline health workers and so are not in a priority group for the vaccine. Given that they are close to infectious people, albeit with full PPE, does the First Minister believe that perhaps the JCDI has not got this quite right? First Minister. Uh, no, I think the JCVI have got things broadly right and we accept the recommendations, but where I agree with Joan McAlpine is that we have to look within these broad categories to see whether there are any additions to the broad categories based on the circumstances of people. So earlier this week, uh, I think, and this is an issue she has raised before, we took the decision to add people uh, with mild or moderate learning disabilities to cohort six. And there's a similar issue here. Uh, obviously, we hugely value the ambulance services contribution uh, at the front line of of the response to the pandemic, and that includes in Dumfries and Galloway. Uh, staff at symptomatic test sites are regularly within the vicinity of people who have COVID, so we have taken the decision to include the symptomatic uh, test site staff in the JCVI classification of frontline health and social care workers, and I can confirm that these workers will shortly receive invites to be vaccinated. Thank you. Liam Kerr to be followed by John Mason. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Last week, I asked the First Minister if she would consider whether offshore workers returning from overseas could quarantine at home to avoid spending, in one case reported to me, up to 75% of their salary in 10 days of their 14 field break in a hotel. This morning, it was announced that certain workers returning from an installation in the North Sea could potentially stay in their own home. So, could the First Minister confirm the rules for oil and gas workers returning from overseas? Will they still be required to quarantine in a hotel? And if so, is there any prospect of a further review in the near future which would permit self-isolation at home? First um, we, we review this on an ongoing basis, so uh, we will always keep arguments and changing evidence uh, under consideration. Um, on the particular point, I will uh, write to the member uh, as soon as possible, because I want to make sure I, I confirm exactly where we've got to with the consideration of oil and gas workers uh, before confirming it in the chamber, but I'll try to get that information to them as quickly as I can. Thank you. John Mason to be followed by Graeme Simpson. Uh, thank you. The Scottish Government's cautious approach to COVID has been very successful and I personally very much welcome it. Uh, if we continue to make good progress as we have been, uh, is it possible that restrictions could be eased more quickly? First Minister. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, we, uh, we have an obligation under the coronavirus legislation to uh, assess the ongoing necessity and uh, proportionality of the restrictions that are in place. That's, that's what we do routinely every time we consider lifting restrictions or indeed imposing restrictions that is encapsulated in the four harms assessment that I regularly talk about. So we set out, I think rightly, uh, a cautious and careful step-by-step -step approach. Uh, but if the data allows it, we will go more quickly. Nobody wants us to be living with these restrictions for a moment longer than necessary. So let's all keep 
keep uh, that downward pressure on the virus right now while the vaccination programme continues to do its work. And I very much hope that we'll be out the other end of this perhaps sooner uh, than any of us uh, are uh, thinking might be the case right now. Thank you. Graham Simpson to be followed by Sandra Hoyt. Thank you. Can the First Minister tell me when I will be able to visit my mother in Cumbria and when she will be allowed to visit me? First Minister. Uh, no, I can't tell the member that right now. Um, I desperately wish I could because I absolutely understand how uh, desperately difficult it is for people unable to see uh, and hug and interact normally with loved ones. Uh, I appreciate his relatives are on the, the English side of the England-Scotland border, but many people within Scotland right now, I, I can't visit my mum and dad because they live in a, a different local authority area. So we all understand this and want these restrictions lifted as quickly as possible. But if I was to give a date right now, um, I, I wouldn't be giving that date based on any assessment that I could properly back up. I hope to be in a position to do that soon, um, and I will do it just as soon as it is possible. Thank you. Sandra White to be followed by Jamie Green. Uh, thank you, President Officer. Uh, First Minister, earlier you mentioned about the rapid spread of COVID in prison. On that basis, can I ask the First Minister what guidance has been issued to lecturing staff in the return to face-to-face -to -face teaching working within the Scottish Prison Service to ensure their health and safety? Well, education provision is essential for rehabilitation. Um, the Scottish Prison Service has a contract with Fife College to provide education services. Uh, these were suspended following the decision by Fife College to furlough staff uh, from 18th January to 12th February this year, but they've now resumed in all establishments with the exception of HMP Dumfries and HMP Greenock. All those working within prisons are required to follow the prison service pandemic plan and are subject to health and safety assessment. Uh, more generally, uh, we've published temporary lockdown guidance for colleges, universities and student accommodation that applies to on-campus and off-campus activity. And this guidance states that institutions should ensure that only those staff who are required to support essential activities are requested to attend in person and for no longer than necessary. Thank you. Jamie Green to be followed by Gordon MacDonald. Thank you, President Officer. Last week, this Parliament asked the Government to urgently release the OECD report into Scottish education, currently sitting on Ministers' desks. This week's worrying attainment figures, I think, perfectly illustrate why it is vital that this Parliament has a chance to scrutinise those findings before dissolution. Can I ask the First Minister, quite simply, will it be released any time soon? First Minister. The OECD hasn't completed its work and it hasn't completed its report. I understand the OECD will be engaging over the next period with stakeholders and will be able to update stakeholders on any conclusions that they have reached so far. As I said, I think last week in the Chamber, uh, the OECD is in charge of the, the process and the timescale of this work. And if the government was to seek to intervene in that uh, or to truncate the timescales or to uh, be seen to dictate to the OECD how it goes about this, I'm pretty sure that the Conservatives would be amongst the first to get to their feet to criticise us for doing that. And Gordon MacDonald. Thank you, President Officer. This month we heard that Scotch whisky exports had decreased by £1 billion in 2020, a drop of 23%. The reason is partly due to the pandemic, but a significant part is due to the 25% US tariff on single malt whisky that continues to damage the industry. Can the First Minister update the Chamber on what action the Scottish Government has taken to support remo the removal of the tariff and what support it has given to the whisky industry in relation to the UK budget next week? 
Well, this is a, an important issue and we will continue to uh, fight for resolution of this for our whisky industry, including through representations we make in terms of the budget. Uh, but not just the whisky industry, other sectors like Kashmir as well. Uh, they have all suffered since US tariffs were imposed over a year ago now. Uh, they're causing significant economic harm uh, and it is estimated at half a billion pounds of losses now and they are growing. The UK government has so far failed to achieve anything meaningful despite regular public statements on this but we will continue to press to get these tariffs lifted. Uh, the jobs, livelihoods and business affected by them uh, matter deeply to Scotland and should matter deeply to all of us. Thank you very much and I think I'm going to finish FMQs at that point. Uh, Business is suspended until 2.30. Thank you very much, colleagues.